welcome to How Fitting, the podcast for fashion designers and entrepreneurs about creating clothing and growing a business that fits your customer, lifestyle, and values. I'm your host, Allison Haynes. Before we get started, do you want to get your designs to production without compromising your brand's fit, vision, or values? My pattern making services are tailored to help women's wear slow fashion brands do just that. You can learn more and book a free introduction call at howfittingpatterns.com to see if we'd be a good fit to work together. Now on to the episode. Today I'm joined by Kirby Vest, the president and CEO of Bespoke Manufacturing Company. So welcome to the show, Kirby. Hey, thank you very much for having me, Allison. I'm delighted. Yeah. This is going to be fun, I think. I've been working with you guys for a while with different clients and really excited to be able to hear more about, yeah, BMC and what you guys are doing. For people listening who are just meeting you for the first time, could you share a little bit about who you are and what you do? Yeah, so I'm the founder of the company and uh, I came originally out of the book industry and everybody will kind of roll their eyes a little bit at this, but the similarities between the book industry and the uh, clothing industry are absolutely uncanny. I love to say that there's an equal and an opposite for every position. Just starting (laughs) off with, you know, you have a, a book publisher and you have a brand, you have an author and you have a designer and you have an editor and you have a creative designer and it just goes on and on and the waste between the two industries were very similar and so when we had done so well in the book industry I decided I would take it into the garment industry so that's a little background on how this all got going yeah that's so interesting and I can see the parallels though you know I guess one's paper one's fabric but similar in terms of Yeah, how things get produced and made and sold. And Uh, it all starts with a creative person. And so that's really the kind of the core of it is that, you know, it does come out of a creative mind and then it has mm -hmm. to be actually translated into a very engineering type mind to actually get it produced. So it's an interesting transition. I will often start speeches by saying, can you tell me a product that's made out of cloth and that is cut and sewn and folded and uh, pressed and then shipped to the customer. And everybody will say uh, a blouse, a jacket, a suit, a dress. And I go, no, a hardcover book. <laughs> so you know, and there are some similarities beyond just the, the creative side of it. Anyway, sorry, I went on and on too much. Oh, no, it's so fascinating. So I know BMC really focuses, and I think this was... if. if correct me if I'm wrong, your focus in the book industry as well is on-demand manufacturing. Is that right? Oh, that is correct. hundred percent. Yeah. We do a minimum order quantity of one and that, that is our sole fo- focus. Yeah. So for somebody listening who maybe is not quite sure, like the differences between an on-demand manufacturing model versus traditional manufacturing, you know, books or garments, can you describe a little bit like what is that difference? Yeah, our focus is on doing thousands of ones all at different times rather than doing a thousand altogether. And so we've mastered how to set up the product and run it very efficiently and uh, get it out the door as fast as possible. 
So it's a different mindset. You have to really kind of be prepared to to rely on the manufacturing to work and to get it out just when you need it. But it's all demand-based. So we kind of laugh at the old method of make a whole bunch and hope that they sell, whereas we're sell one and then make one. And that's really the genesis of the whole thing is sell one, make one. Yeah. And I love that it like not only makes it less risky for the brand to try new styles that way, but it's also cutting down on the waste of, you know, if the product doesn't sell and you made a thousand of them, what happens with that? So are there other benefits of on-demand manufacturing to brands or to the environment or to the consumer? Oh, we think a whole bunch, but let's go back to the environment. There were two document, um, what are they called? (laughs) Sorry. Documentary. Yeah, documentaries. The first one, which a lot of people have seen called The True Cost. Mm -hmm. And then a second one that really put me over the edge on this and how serious this was. And that was Where Ships Go to Die. And I'd never really thought it through about, you know, these massive cargo ships that go back and forth on the ocean, which create an enormous amount of pollution under themselves. Mm -hmm. But then they get beached over in a beach in Africa, and there's tens of thousands of them. And then they get dismantled by kids. And, you know, they lose children every day in this awful process. But all of the guck that has accumulated over the years just oozes out into the ocean and they're rusting and everything else. And that was where I went, we've got to do something about that. And that's what this is all about is, you know, trying to cut back on going back and forth. And our goal is to build 10 of these plants, five in the United States, then five around the world. And you produce more either in the country or close to the country that has the demand for the product. Mm. Yeah. Can I convince you to make one of those U.S. plants in St. Louis? Because I would be super (laughs) excited. (laughs) Well, we'd love to. We've had quite a few cities approach us saying, you know, would you come, including the one over in uh, Saudi Arabia. I don't know if you've heard of that new city that's built on just a line. Yeah, I have. And they've approached us and say, would you consider looking at a factory over there? So we, we've got enough on our plate right here to, to try and keep us busy. But <laughs> the pollution like side, I think the risk is the biggest one. I think our the biggest issues facing the garment industry really are inventory, low profitability, and the environment. And those three things are just paramount to me. And I think we can help address all three. Yeah. So cool. Yeah. So are there really any downsides to an on-demand production model? I would love to tell you no, but the reality is I think both models can work well together, a long model, a long run model and an on-demand model where the long run model does the, the bulk orders, but The customers now order maybe 50% of what they used to do. And then on demand fills in the gaps and does the outliers. So I I do think it's it's not an either or kind of threat. It it really should be an either and working together to make it work. Yeah, I have some clients that produce in-house and 
they do a similarly where they do larger runs like 500 or something and then they keep stock of fabrics and materials on hand to be able to fill sizes or you know maybe certain outlier sizes like the extra small doesn't sell as many and so they might not cut that in the bulk one but they can fill sizes as they're ordered and it works well to kind of balance out both the high demand and then be able to offer more options outside of the kind of most popular sizes and pieces. Exactly. Exactly. And it hopefully frees up cash that allows a brand to experiment with more colors and more variations. Mm-hmm. Plus, if you, I love to poke the industry on this one. And that's, <laughs> you know, women's dresses come in two, four, six, and eight. And I always go, well, where's three, five, and seven? And I get the same thing quite frequently. And that is that, oh, those are Mrs. Sizes or something like that. And yeah, they're the juniors. The juniors. Juniors, uh, (laughs) they're like shaped and proportioned differently, but similar size to like the two and the three are similar size, but different shape. Yeah. But I kind of go, you know, my ruler still has the three, five, and seven in it. And the real reason is inventory. Nobody mm-hmm. wants to create that much inventory because it's not likely going to sell. So they're either going to stuff you into a two or you're going to swim in a four. And mm-hmm. But with on-demand, all it is is electronically making another set of patterns and very easy to do once you've got your grade rules. And so for us, we can make any size. You could make two, 2.5, 2.2, 2.3, 2.4, But that would be just overkill. Really, two, two and a half, three, three and a half, four is more than enough. Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah, especially you... depending on the, the product too, like if they're stretch or not. Right, exactly. And you can then get into body shapes where you have, you know, an hourglass figure as opposed to a straight figure or a pear or an apple. And that now you can make those shapes and electronically and make the patterns for that person. So, mm-hmm. so cool. Yeah, so it is. Can, it is so cool. It's changing everything. Yeah. So is on demand. How how is on demand different than made to measure then? Because that's kind of a like made to measure has been around for a long time. And typically, I feel like only the very kind of higher end brands or formal wear does made to measure. Is that the same as on demand or are there differences there? There are differences, but basically those two circles are merging closer and closer together because Mm -hmm. of this ability to create your patterns electronically. And we can make literally millions of patterns for a garment. Now you're merging that with the on-demand of being able to do it um, quickly. Then the two circles overlap. So -hmm. we would say that our dresses are really made to measure. Gotcha. And of course, with new electronic measuring, you're eliminating all the hurdles. And I will tell you that there is one massive hurdle, and that is we can now measure electronically very accurately. We can now make the clothing in any size very accurately. What we can't really get to easily is ease. 
you might like to wear something very tight, whereas I might like to wear it very loose. And that mm-hmm. ease is an impossible factor to to get without asking a person directly. Mm-hmm. Yeah, the fit preferences is, is yeah. a huge thing. And I think one thing, I mean, not to get too nerdy <laughs> as a pattern maker, but another yeah. thing that I pay attention to a lot in getting the fit is you know, outside of the shape and the kind of designer's vision and the customer preferences for ease and how they like their clothes to fit, but it's the movement. So it can look beautiful, you know, and fit the measurements of kind of a static body or static form, yeah. you know, dress form, but it's the, how does it feel when it moves? That is, is one of the big things that I always pay attention to when drafting a pattern and creating that fit as well. Yeah. Well, that's actually one of the stories that got me into this business was we were skiing in the world championships, cross-country skiing and shooting, which is biathlon. And Adidas had sponsored us with brand new suits and the suits looked lovely, but nobody had thought about the zipper placement. (laughs) And about a mile into the race, the suits all rode up the front and choked us. And we had to rip <laughs> these suits down the front and they were very expensive. So needless to say, Adidas was livid at us for ruining these very expensive suits, but nobody had ever kind of tested them. And mm-hmm. that's how I got into this was we started testing clothing for these new athletic companies. And, you know, this will really age me, but my first U.S. Olympic training camp that I went to, a guy brought in a pair of shoes that had been made up in uh, Oregon that were made on this guy's waffle iron. And of course, you know, the brand now is Nike. And uh, Mm -hmm. I remember when they started. So, so this whole testing is very important. And what we can do today is just unbelievable compared to before. Yeah. Yeah, it really is. And I think there, I've seen so much interest in, you know, a a little bit more of a sustainable production model, less risk, being able to offer more sizes. So many brands are looking for that even in the past few years, especially, but even kind of five, six years are really looking for that option where they don't want to produce a thousand, five thousand of something. They want to be able to test it with what if we made five and had people try this out, try the product, get feedback on it, fix some of these, you know, things that might come up and improve the product, maybe, you know, maybe before doing a larger run. Oh, Allison, that's exactly what we should be doing. It's, and it's so easy to do it now. Uh, I get teased a lot when I say this, and I love to kind of uh, poke the industry. And one of the things that I say is we should stop making uh, samples, And um, people just go ballistic when they hear me say that. But what I really mean by that is that instead of sending this to a sample room that does, you know, usually the samples are exquisitely made, why not design it all and then send it to manufacturing and have the manufacturer run one and see what it comes off the production floor like. And if you don't like it, then change it. And now you've paid instead of, you know, $350 for a sample, you've paid $20 or $50 for a, a real production run. 
And then you modify it from there. And maybe you make five and give them to your friends or give them to a sports team or give them to some group that could give you good feedback and say, you know, the armhole isn't large enough or, oh, the neckline Mm -hmm. just doesn't fit. That's, I think, a much better way to do it. Mm -hmm. So when I say don't do samples, what I'm really saying is, yes, do production samples of one and keep iterating on it until you have something that's perfect. Yeah, I can see, I feel like the fashion industry, and I'm guessing you agree, is very old school in a lot of ways and hesitant to change. Though change, I think, has been forced upon the industry much more quickly in the last, you know, since the pandemic, especially. But, you know, one of those things is being able to, well, sampling in general, and now there's the whole, you know, 3D sampling, which you can get a lot of, you know, fix a lot of fit issues even before you produce the garment. But it does make a lot of sense. And I always, you know, encourage my clients to do this too, of, yeah, do those production samples, run it through, like work with your actual factory that you're going to be producing with to do those samples because you're not only going to be able to test the product, but you get to see the quality of the sewing. The factory gets to test the product and make sure their machines are set up, you know, the best way for that. And you work out kind of those, you know, any kind of bumps in the production process so that once the product is approved, you know, it'll be produced with really high quality and like you've kind of already done the groundwork to onboard at the factory. Right. Right. No, I couldn't agree with you more. Absolutely. So with an on-demand production model, like how does that scale as the brand grows or or can it? Like, is there a point where on-demand, like a brand might outgrow on-demand and move to those higher runs or kind of what does that look like as brands kind of start out and then kind of gain traction in the market? It's a wonderful question. And the answer is surprisingly complicated. If the brand feels that they can now accurately project their sales and their sizing and their colors, then you move into that hybrid model where you do go offshore and get a much better price per unit and then fill in all the gaps and the outliers with on-demand. So I think, yes, at some point they can get up, get out of the on-demand world and move into the the long-run production. But I would always keep a foot in it because I think that will be your best model overall. It's uh, when you move from on-demand that is fulfilling your orders directly, now you've got to have a warehouse and now you've got to have warehouse staff and, you know, you just keep adding more and more people to it. Um, and, and that takes away your margin. And so I think a constant analysis, a risk analysis, a financial analysis, it has to be done to make sure you're in the right model. And, and sometimes the cost of that analysis isn't worth it. We, we watched so many publishers in the, in the book world who said, well, let me test out this on demand. <clears throat> then they liked it. And a lot of them switched everything over. And once they had switched it over, then they started either getting, paring down the number of warehouses they had or getting rid of them altogether. And they go, it's just not worth it. Yeah. 
the we get a much better cost per unit, but in the end, we get a much better cost per unit sold ratio. And that's what's important. It's not the cost per unit. It's the cost per unit sold that's important. Yeah, that's a great point because I think that's one of the big maybe hurdles that I see for brands who they like the idea of an on-demand model, but then they're like, oh, wow, this is so much more expensive. The cut and sew cost of this is more expensive per garment than traditional kind of bulk manufacturing. But then, yeah, you're totally right when you factor in all those other pieces of production and fulfillment and the risk of unsold inventory and all of that, then like the total cost per garment sold is much more comparable and makes more sense for a lot more brands. No, good for you. That is the whole point of this is if your accounting is generally siloed and I'll, yeah, I wanted to tell you a book story, then I will. But it's so important to really look at your bottom line and focus on your bottom line because it doesn't matter what you're paying per unit. If it doesn't help your bottom line, then who cares? You can buy it for 10 cents, but if you have to buy 10 million of them to get that 10 cents, mm-hmm. it doesn't help you because your warehouse to store 10 million is going to be outrageous. So, So we analyzed one of the big brands out there and we thought we could actually add 4% better bottom line, which is a significant bump. If they were making a 6% bottom line, we could get them to 10%. But they were so invested in their warehousing and their distribution and their supply chains. And there are a lot of buyers that, you know, love their trips to Europe and Asia and stuff like that. And they don't want to change. They like it just the way it is. But you got to get out of that silo at accounting and start looking at what the bottom line should be. Mm-hmm. Great point. Yeah. So I'm curious, and I'm sure people listening are also you know curious about this when they're they're hearing this. But what type of garments or brands or products are the best fit for BMC's capabilities? And then maybe which types are not a great fit for or the the skills or the machinery you have right now? So I'll answer that a number of ways. The on-demand model is capable of making anything, but Mm -hmm. the reality of our model is designed much more towards high-end women's wear than anything else. I could build a factory, an on-demand factory for jeans, which I do get asked that an awful lot, that would have... (laughs) different equipment, heavier grade equipment for the heavier denim. But we decided we would go after certain products. We believe that women are the most underserved market in terms of on-demand clothing. And so that's what we decided we'd go after first. And and we continue to do that. So like beading on a wedding gown. We just can't do that at this stage. Heavy denim, we just can't do that. Swimwear is tough for us to do. We could set up a plant, we could set up a division, but unless we knew there was going to be enough volume, there are certain things that we just want to stay away from. So it's mm-hmm. a skill set and a and an equipment set that kind of dictates really what an on-demand plant will look like or what they'll produce. Mm-hmm. 
I hope that makes sense. Yeah, it it totally does. And I'm with you. I also don't touch beating on things like that would drive me crazy. But yeah, one of the questions that I always ask factories and I think is so important is the specialization in terms of like knowing the strengths and weaknesses of a particular factory or particular, you know, line or unit of the factory and playing into that because like you know as you said you could do all these things but like if you don't have the current skill set or machinery to do it well then it's not going to be as cost effective you know for your team and to the brand or as high quality of a product so I really like that you guys kind of know what the current strengths and and who's a good fit for the skills that you have in your team now yeah I'll I'll add something to it that you'd be interested in. When we started looking at the differences between long run and short run or long run and on demand, we Mm -hmm. started um, understanding it more and more. And we developed something called seam theory. It was developed by a woman by the name of Nicole Hugaboom and myself. And what it is, how do you emulate long run as much as you possibly can in the on demand world? And so one of the things that we do is when an order comes in, we will hold it for a number of hours in the hopes that a second or third order comes in for that same product. And we can gang them together in cutting and nest Mm -hmm. them so that we Mm -hmm. get uh, fabric efficiencies. Then the second thing we do is we've set up our factory in pods and each pod specializes in a specific seam. And that this is where we get the the term seam theory. So each pod focuses on like a side seam or a hem or a sleeve or a cuff. And they will start to get better and better and faster and faster. So even though they're doing a different product every single time, they're doing the same scene every single time. Mm-hmm. And, you know, there are differences, of course, but generally a side seam is a side seam is a side seam. And so they gain efficiency that way. We, we also brought into this theory the idea that if you bring somebody off the street, like for us, it'll always be trying to hire the best of the best. But once you've kind of saturated your market and you've hired all the best sewers, now your next phase is how do you train somebody to be really good really quickly? Mm-hmm. So if you look at a matrix of fabric across the top and sewing machine types down the bottom, down the left-hand side, down the y-axis, we think that you know a, a heavy cotton on a single needle machine is probably the easiest thing to sew. Mm -hmm. So I'd agree. (laughs) Yeah. If, if you can hire somebody off the street that can thread a machine and turn it on and off and can read a ruler, which is a very important part, we think we can train them on one seam, one machine. Hang on. I got, I got to get this. There's four. One type of fabric. (laughs) Yeah. One type of, yeah. One, one machine, one seam, one fabric in one day. Mm. And, And then once they get their confidence up, then you can start to introduce more fabrics. And then when they become good on more fabrics, then if they want, then they can go to more machines. 
And you do the same sort of process. And we think we can train staff very quickly and to be very good quickly. So that's that's scene theory in a nutshell, but it's working incredibly well here. Oh, good. Yeah, I'm glad to hear that because that's another thing where I always, everybody is always asking, oh, do you know a really good seamstress or a really good, you know, like it seems like factories and brands are always looking for good sewers yeah. and it's a dying skill. So it's yeah. really great to know that you have a, a really solid way that's working well to train new people in those skills. So, so let me have a little fun with you on this. Yeah. We're about to launch a product and the product will have, you, you know what a skew is. Mm-hmm. So this product will come out and in the first three months, we will go from, it's about 350,000 SKUs oh, wow. to, to 2,929,000 2, quadrillion SKUs. And that's, that's a lot. It's a lot. Yes. Yeah. It's a big number. And that is, it sounds like an exaggeration, but it's when you start to look at every size of every product of, sorry, every size of a different bodice and a different skirt with mm-hmm. a slit, with different lengths, with different colors in different fabrics, and you start multiplying those together. That's what ChatGPT says to us is it's in the quad, it's in the thousands of quadrillions. <laughs> so, yeah, all yeah. the possible combinations. Right. Which you could never even dream of a few years ago, but with on demand, you can. Mm-hmm. So, yeah. Not whether that helps anybody, but it certainly <laughs> offers a wide selection of hitting every body type and every length and every fabric and every color. So, Yeah, then it almost shifts the designer's role, maybe not like away from design, but adds more curation, where picking, you know, which of these options is best, because like the customer is going to be overwhelmed with, you know, whatever, I can't even remember how high of the number you said, of options. So it's like curating, which is the best to show and which options customers are going to want, that's going to be just what they want, but not so overwhelming that they yeah. like are frozen and don't make a purchase at all. Allison, you're 100% right. That is where you get into this theory of you have too many choices, so you don't want to choose anything. Mm-hmm. And, uh, mm-hmm. But you're right. But it's for some, if you can present it in a unique way saying, okay, I know I want this style, but I would like it you know, in this length. If you offer each option cumulatively, if I said that correctly, mm-hmm. but then it becomes a lot easier. If you throw them, you know, a quadrillion options, they're going to be overwhelmed. But to, to be able to say, well, I want this skirt to be 29 inches and I want a slit on my left side and I want pockets but if you're offering them one at a time, it's a lot easier to make those decisions. And if you mm-hmm. can see it when you add it, it also adds a fun new element. And mm-hmm. if you can share that, what you see with a friend, then it becomes a lot more fun. Mm-hmm. So. Yeah, for sure. I, I know some of the brands I've worked with, they like the presentation of different options on the website is really key of 
you know, whether it's a 3D rendering where you're able to kind of swap colors if you want, like I want this contrast color strap or, you know, this, I want the sleeves to be this print and the body to be this other print and being able to show those options in real time really helps, you know, builds confidence with the customer of, yeah, this is really cool. And then they tend to want to, you know, show their friends to look at this custom thing I made with all these different options. It's almost like I feel like nicer furniture does this where it shows you the different options you can choose. Like the piping is this color and the pillows are this color and it kind of shows you, you know, kind of build your right. own options in a way. Right. No, exactly. So um, have those to know it's available if you want mm-hmm. it. So. Cool. So I know technology plays a huge role in BMC's operations. Can you talk a little bit about just kind of the different technologies that you use in your Phoenix plant? Yeah. So our operating system here is we bought it through a company called iCreate.fashion. And iCreate was created to help designers and brands create a tech pack that a a high-end operating company, a manufacturing company could read automatically. And so that's how that firm started. And it it can produce a tech pack that is human readable or machine readable. And I think that's going to be more and more importantly, more and more important in the next little while. We have gone to a very automated system where an order comes in and it gets um, sent automatically to the cutter and gets nested. And then the cutter cuts it and then it gets sent to parts and a part as the tote that carries this one product goes down a conveyor belt, uh, a barcode reads the side of it and tells the uh, machine up front that it's going to need you know, a a 12-inch zipper and a hook and an eye and three labels. And so that machine will uh, present the right shelf at the right time. And then it puts it into that tote. And then a robot comes and picks up that tote and uh, takes it to the right sewing pod in the right order. But while it's doing that, it's also making sure it's going to the one that has the right color thread on it and Mm -hmm. make sure that the person is trained on that operation. And then it also will load level the plant factory so that it gets the right product going to the right person at the right time and will get it through that operation as fast as possible. And that's all done by computers and it's... People ask me often, did I buy robots to replace people? And and the answer is, I actually didn't think of it that way. Uh, I use these robots because they can converse with computers and uh, make decisions thousands of times a minute. Seven times a second, it's asking those five questions and getting it to the right person. Well, no human could do that on a consistent Mm -hmm. basis. So it wasn't a oh, were you trying to cut back on labor? It was actually, no, I was trying to do something that couldn't be done by labor. So, mm-hmm. yeah. So and it's might, a, And almost might be more like boring of tasks if it's just like bringing the tote from here to there. That's not a particularly, I don't know, meaningful task yes, no, that like a right. human might not enjoy doing that all day anyway. Yep. 
No, you're absolutely right. And that's why it's better to be done by robots. And you got to remember, I'm desperately trying to hire people. So it's not like I'm cutting back. I'm, we're actually hiring to run these robots. You know, somebody has mm-hmm. to fix them and keep them running and keep them keep them going. Yeah. So just out of curiosity, because, you know, talking about kind of the, the industry being old school, but there's so much new technology and new innovation happening. Are there any tasks or things that roles that like must be human right now that you don't see kind of technology or robots replacing anytime soon? I'm just curious. Oh, no, absolutely. Absolutely. We can automate everything except for that unbelievable skills that our sewers have of putting two pieces of fabric through a machine and getting them sewn together. Um, I don't see anything on the horizon and I'm watching it very closely. I am involved with one group developing something, but it's not going to be easy. And it's, if the product was stiff, like you were dealing with carbon fiber or steel or something, mm-hmm. that's a lot easier to feed through a machine. But if the 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 fabric is soft and, and squishy and moves and stretches and, and changes shape, that's a whole different element. Mm-hmm. And so only humans can do that. And I, Alison, I'll tell you, I love going out and watching what these men and women can do sewing two pieces of fabric together. I still get huge enjoyment um, uh, watching what they do. And I'm actually, I'm holding up my sewing test. I had to sew a pillow with a a bead around the outside. And and so I'm very proud of that. Now I have a taste of what they can do. Can't do it very well, but I I sure love what they can accomplish. Mm -hmm. That's really cool though that, um, and I totally agree that that sewing is, it is. It takes a finesse and understanding the fabric, and even you know, like you said, do, do you stretch it or do you kind of feed it through quickly ease it to in. ease it in yeah. to something? And sometimes yeah. it depends on the product and the or the area of the garment or what seam it is. That is how it works. And, um, yeah, exactly. yeah, that's so interesting. I, I think a lot of people who are like completely unfamiliar with the fashion industry think that. Oh, it's just robots that sew things together. You know, it's not still <laughs> yes, humans. Right. And then, yeah, I think it's so interesting that you're saying, no, that's for the foreseeable future. It it's, has to be humans that are behind the sewing machine. Behind the majority of it. I mean, I've seen a, a machine that can sew pockets mm-hmm. on a pair of jeans um, beautifully. Mm-hmm. Um, don't get me wrong. They're, they're great. But they're sewing the pocket onto uh, the same size jeans for a thousand pairs. And then the machine has to get changed for the next size mm-hmm. and, and stuff. So that doesn't work in the on-demand world. Um, yeah, we need each, to be each piece might be different has. that comes through. It could be different. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And, you know, we give the option. Um, you can decide whether you want one pocket or two pockets or 10 pockets <laughs> and, um, so it's not that same consistency. Mm-hmm. Uh, now, do I think they'll develop something? There is something in the works that is incredibly exciting. But uh, the reality is, I don't think I'm going to see it in my business career. So Interesting. Yeah. Um, so I know you had a previous 
factory in um, Alabama, correct? Before opening correct. this one in Phoenix. Yeah. Um, I w- worked with a few clients that um, produced with you guys um, at that first factory. <laughs> no, they lo- <laughs> no. It, it, the quality was great. Um, Good. And... <laughs> I'm curious why you said, uh-oh. Um, but yeah. uh, my question is, uh, where, is there anything you learned from that first factory that you've been able to improve on in this new plant? Like, was there anything that you did differently and maybe why? Oh, absolutely. We learned so much from that plant. Um, I, I think, and I, <laughs> I, I'll probably get criticized for this one, but um, as you know better than anybody, the creative mind is brilliant at creating these wonderful garments, Mm -hmm. but translating that information into a consistent structured um, set of rules, um, they don't do very well. Mm -hmm. Uh, Some (laughs) do, but a lot of them don't. And um, you know, it's, it's one of those, why you're in business, why I'm in business. Mm -hmm. Um, So understanding that, the plants of the future are going to need the same bit of information in the same cell every single time in the same unit of measurement. You know, you can't have it in metric and then have it in, in imperial measurements the next time. Mm-hmm. Um, unless, unless there's some way to signal the, the computers to read it differently. So we started with that. We started with how do you create a software company that can help um, create these smart tech packs. And a smart tech pack we define as it is a file that either contains or can point to any bit of information needed to manufacture and sell that product. Mm. And um, so that's kind of our definition of a, a smart tech pack. And um, um, so that would be the first thing. The second thing is, we only use conveyor belts in the other factory. And um, so the conveyor belts are obviously bolted to the floor. So they weren't very maneuverable and we couldn't change things quickly. So with this whole factory, um, we've changed it where everything is run by robots. And if we need to change, you know, two single needles have to go uh, somewhere else, we, we can do it within minutes. Whereas we couldn't do that before. So. That would be the other one. Um, yeah, that's huge. Yeah, huge. So, um, yeah, it's and I think the whole scene theory has kind of focused on on what we need to do to make things happen. So, um, yeah, that's helped us an awful lot as well. And that all came out of some thinking of people at um, at um, the old plant. Yeah, yeah. It sounds like you kind of like started these same ideas at the old plant and then really kind of taken it to the next level and brought some of them kind of more to reality with this, with this new Phoenix one. Yeah. And, and we will do that in our next plant. Um, We already have the next plant designed and it's, it's a lot more efficient than this plant. And um um, we've tightened up areas and we now know how robots work, mm-hmm. which you know, these AMRs, um, are, are wonderful things. I, I just marvel at them every time seeing them scoot around the plant, but some need, 
uh, you have to have a certain amount of safety with them. And so if they're going down a pathway and somebody has left a box in the way, they have to go around it. Well, when they go around it, they have to enter uh, one safety zone, which means they think differently. And if they have to go way around it, then they enter a second safety zone and they have to go back through both of them to get back online mm. or back on track and stuff. So we've learned to dedicate aisles that are just for high-speed robots. So yeah, we've learned a lot. Yeah. A lot. Yeah. I'm going to really have to come visit sometime because it oh, sounds so, so cool. I would probably be walking around like nerding out over everything. <laughs> <laughs> well, if I haven't sent, we've got a new video out. Um, have you seen it on um, it's kind of our environmental video i'll send it yeah to you yeah afterwards. i'm not sure if i have or not i've seen some of them but i don't know if i've seen that one well this is the one that has a little clip from the true cost and the, where ships go to die and um i luckily got to speak to the guy who made the the true cost and he said i love what you're doing and yes you can use our film so uh, that was really a wonderful thing that came out of this that you know he did this so that people were aware of it and we've done something to kind of address it and he was happy to to let us share it so i'll send this right afterwards yeah cool thank you i'll put it in the show notes too if other people want to check it out right um yeah so where do you see the future of the fashion industry heading and um how does on-demand manufacturing play a part of that future well, I think it's a very exciting future. I think you're going to get more and more people involved with the design and the creation of new products. And I think they'll get to test them so that they'll be better. And I think that the end consumer will end up with something that fits better, but also performs like if they wanted pockets, they can put the pockets where they need it. If they wanted a pocket for an iPhone, you know, it could be a certain size or an iPad. So we'll customize things to be so much better than they've ever been. And um, I think the future is so bright for new fabrics, new, new kind of um, methods. And, um, you know, I, I look at, you might have heard this, but we experimented with very early wicking material. Mm -hmm. And in those days, it was like wearing a screen door. It was just awful. <laughs> Today's wicking material is so much better and it's soft and does its job perfectly. And I think we'll have more and more fabrics that do things that uh, we couldn't have dreamt about before. So mm -hmm. very bright future for fashion for more and more people being involved in being creative and um um and i think uh, a lot of it will be driven by on demand oh cool um yeah so if there are brands out there listening who are interested in on-demand manufacturing and maybe want to work with bmc what is maybe the best way that they can be prepared to do so so you have to um, uh, create a smart tech pack to work with us. And right now I create, I create dot fashion is the only one that can create those. And as you know, you can help people get their information into mm -hmm. them. Um, um, but then phone us and come for a tour. We love giving tours so people can actually see it. 
we do have a full-time videographer that a lot of people have taken advantage of with their brands because they love to show their customers mm -hmm. how it's done in North America and it's not um, using child labor and et cetera, et cetera. So um, yeah, but call us anytime. We're, we're bmc.fashion. I'll put links to that in the show notes so everyone can um, know where to find you. Um, Perfect. I have one more question that I ask everyone at the end of the interview, which is <laughs> if you could communicate one value to the world through the work that you do, what would it be? I have to be careful on this. Um, I am a environmentalist, but not a good one. Mm. Um, I have my own issues with the environment and what we're doing to it. I try to be the best I possibly can, but I don't want to stand on my horse and, and kind of tout everybody's got to follow what we do. But I, I think we have to be very, very careful with what we're doing to the planet and how we're destroying so many of our own ecosystems. So I, I do think that the on-demand model helps address that. Um, I think it gives a better product. I think it's more profitable and it addresses the environmental. So I, I think it, it, we have to be careful that we're not always buying on price. We're buying on what it really costs the, the, the planet. Mm -hmm. And so... So I say that, but I'm, um, you know, not perfect myself, but it's, I mean, none, none it's of us are, we all use resources, right? It's yeah. 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 We all do for sure. Yeah, for sure. So, um, but it is fun to start to realize what you can do mm -hmm. and why it's important and, and, uh, what's going to happen in the future. So, yeah. Being, being thoughtful about what the impact of each kind of choice is. And really, like you said, what, what is the the real cost behind this, you know, not just the sticker, right. the price tag on it in the first place. So I, I agree. Well, I watched my, my wife, uh, we have four boys and um, she always brought high quality products for the boys. And I was always kind of like, Oh, yikes, that's expensive. But if you look at the photographs of my boys growing up, you will see the same clothing pass from boy to boy mm -hmm. to boy. And um, there was this one marvelous cow suit. And um, I think we have a picture of every, every boy in the same suit. And so, you know, there's something that is just proving that, you know, you can buy cheap, but that's not always the cheapest way to buy things. Yeah. Cause and you're going to so, have to rebuy it again in a few months. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, so, I, total, anyway. I totally agree. Um, well, this has been so fun, Kirby, to get to chat with you more and hear about kind of the the start and, and the kind of evolving process of uh, BMC and on-demand manufacturing. And it's super exciting to get to hear from you today. Well, Allison, we love what you're doing. Okay. And um, so thank you very much for including me in the show. I'm delighted. Yeah. That's it for today. Thanks for listening. If you enjoyed this episode, please share it with a friend. If you'd like more episodes and resources like this about growing a fashion business that fits your customer, lifestyle, and values, send straight to your inbox. You can sign up for my email list at howfittingpatterns.com newsletter. Again, thank you for listening, and I hope you'll join me again for the next episode of How Fitting.